Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Victoria Patterson is the author of the story collection Drift, which was a finalist for the Commonwealth Club Award and the Story Prize. Her work has appeared in various publications and journals, including the LA Times, the Alaska Review, Quarterly Review, and the Southern Review. She lives with her family right here in Southern California and teaches at uh, UC Extension and is a visiting assistant professor at UC Riverside. Please welcome Victoria Patterson. Okay. Ooh. Thank you, everyone, for coming out, and thank you, Skylight, and I'm really glad to be here reading with Jim. Um, I even wore a dress, which I, it's been 10 years, I think, since I last wore a dress, but I figured I would, for Esther, my main character, would wear a dress. And um, I'm going to read from my new novel, This Vacant Paradise. It's just out. The, pa the uh, passage that I'm going to read for you, the only thing I want you to know is that Esther has been um, courting, or he's been courting her, Paul Rice, um, who is very wealthy. His father is on Forbes, um, 400 Most Wealthy Americans, and she's about to land him. He's getting ready to propose. And before that, she's having this very um, important brunch with Mr. and Mrs. Rice, the parents, and she's meeting them for the first time. She's a bit hungover. And she's starting to um, question her her choices. So, and I'm going to take my sweater off really <laughs> quick because I know I'm going to get. Off. Thank you. Woo! <laughs> ah, it's been a long time. <laughs> it's got a hole in it, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, this I got from like a secondhand store, which is also appropriate to the novel and. That, I think, uh, someone left it at the, the workplace, the restaurant I waited on for, it was in the lost and found, and nobody claimed it, so I got it there. And so everything is borrowed, which is kind of, um, when you read the book, you'll, you'll understand. Okay. <coughs> Except for my lovely earrings. <laughs> Esther wasn't able to flatter Mr. Rice or flirt with him. Her knowledge of business was limited, and while she faked interest and improvised, Listening intently and asking questions, she knew that what he wanted was to be alone at his desk, expanding his empire. Mrs. Rice was an extension of her husband, business partners more than companions, or, God forbid, lovers. And as she sipped at her Bloody Mary, celery stock on her bread plate, she contributed little to the conversation. Her plate was stacked with honeydew melon and cottage cheese and a side of unbuttered wheat toast, but she had focused her attention on the finger-sized sausages, cutting them into niblets and then eating the pieces one by one. She had a post-menopausal and sexually neutral appearance with her boxy figure in a dark blue pantsuit and her hair sensibly coiffed, pepper gray. Her only signs of femininity were a string of pearls wrapped tightly around her neck and her sturdy fingers decorated with diamond, ruby, and emerald rings. When Esther had first entered the country club, while Paul and his father had stood to greet her, Mrs. Rice had continued to sit, her eyes traveling over Esther's sandals, dress, shawl, ring, necklace, and purse in that order before landing on her face, unimpressed. Then Esther had caught Mrs. Rice staring at Paul, hard and searching, taking him in from inside to outside and sparing nothing. And, and in observing Mrs. Rice's staggering stare, Esther had shuddered, understanding that Paul had to habitually and continually face his mother's scrutiny, that he was always having to live up to her expectations every hour, every day, and that by bringing Esther to the brunch, he disappointed in some fundamental way. Esther used her fork to 
cut tiny fragments off a crab and gruyere cheese omelet made for her by the chef as she had waited by his table in the buffet line. She set her fork on the plate, prongs entwined with ye ye yellow egg matter. She clutched her shawl tight, drew it round her body as if huddling for security and sipped her mimosa. Thoughts of her future crowded in her head, intolerable, married to a man who picked at his ears and would not once surprise her, a father-in-law who cared nothing for her, a mother-in-law who despised her. She watched Paul's coffee being refilled, a brown syrupy arc issuing from the thin spout of a silver coffee pitcher, steam rising from his glass mug, and the smell was unbearable. For a fleeting instant, she thought she would throw up, but she swallowed the rising tide. Paul's eyes met hers from across the table. She attempted a smile, but her mood was dark and foreboding, and she wasn't successful. Paul's condition, what he called essential tremors, worsened in response to strong emotions. His hands were under the table. His knife and fork were crossed over his plate, although he'd barely eaten his mushroom and cheddar omelet. There was a blush to his cheeks, two pink streaks, as if he wore makeup. In high school, Paul's twin sister had died in a drunk driving accident, and the tremors had developed soon after. Paul had explained that his parents continued to grieve, as if a shroud had been placed over them. Esther hadn't quite understood the gravity until meeting Mr. and Mrs. Rice, and now she was convinced that there was no chance of light cracking through. What had seemed nobly sad in theory, a family forever in mourning, was in reality disturbing. She took a bite of her omelet while thinking of death. That might be the best sentence I've ever written. I'm sorry, I gotta read it again. <laughs> she, <clears throat> she took a bite of her omelet while thinking of death. And then, against her better judgment, she imagined performing the sexual act with Paul while his parents and twin sister, an exact replica of Paul but with long hair and breasts, watched like referees, and she felt the egg matter turn both rubbery and liquid in her mouth. She could neither chew nor swallow. Saliva pooled in her mouth. She forced herself to swallow, and then she washed everything down with her mimosa, but the food and drink wanted to climb its way back out. She set her napkin to her lips, swallowed again. Her skin was hot, prickling. She excused herself to the restroom, and when she stood, Paul half stood, his chair dragging against the carpet. He, he crouched before the table, hands shaking, his linen napkin crumpled at his thigh like a small white animal pausing on its way up his leg. She implored him with her eyes to sit back down, and he complied. Mr. Rice, grimly engaged with his fork, extracting crescents of oily onions and red peppers from a side plate of grilled potatoes, and then it setting them on the rim of another plate, ignored her. But she caught a glimpse of Mrs. Rice, who was staring at her with obvious dislike. Walking the long hallway to the woman's lounge, she observed the hanging portraits of the country club's presidents from its founding, 1932, until now. The faces, white, male, old, grimacing, blended together, and by the time she arrived at the women's lounge, she was convinced that they were a horif horrific conglomeration of Mr. Rice. She didn't want to return to the table, much less marry into the family. Her queasiness released itself into the toilet, prompted by two manicured fingers down her throat, bits of crab and egg and pulp from the orange juice, until she was left with a few last nasty dry heaves and some floating bile. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> she heard a woman coughing near the sinks as if to alert her that it was rude to vomit at the country club and she wiped her mouth with toilet paper the piano music was being piped into the bathroom through hidden speakers barely audible a melancholy interpretation of my favorite things the bathroom door opened and closed, whoever had coughed her disapproval, thankfully leaving. Esther's body had a cold, sweaty, and tingling relief after vomiting, but the panic would not leave. She flushed the toilet twice more, appreci appreciating the aggressive sound of the water swirling and rushing down the porcelain bowl, carrying away any last filmy evidence of her sickness. At the sinks, along with the black combs and the blue sanitized water, hairbrushes, a large wicker basket with folded hand-drying towels, and the various hand soap were tiny bottles of scope, and she rinsed her mouth. She spat the greenish-blue into the sink and watched it run down the drain. When she looked at herself in the mirror, she had the sensation that she was observing someone else, a woman with a stunned expression, skin pale. 
She sat on the couch in the woman's lounge in a separate room near where the old women played poker and bridge. But this morning, the peach-colored womb-like windowless room was empty, the wall lined with yellow lockers, little padlocks on each one. The piano music was shut off from the room, making it strangely peaceful and stagnant. In a numb stupor, Esther breathed deeply, knowing that she was decreasing her chances of marriage with each passing minute, but she sat and sat until what seemed like an hour had passed. During this time, she thought about many things, including how her father had told her that she was an easy child. You'd float in the pool for hours, he'd say. I'd put you in the pool so I could read, yellow floaties on your arms and your ducky inner tube, your fingers tapping at the water, humming a little, singing a little. I had to, I had to make a conscious effort to remember you. You. Was I happy? Was I smiling? No, not really, but you weren't unhappy. She tried to remember the feeling, her feet swirling beneath her, float drifting, hands flapping against the surface, bumping against the tiled edge of the pool, drifting back to the center, like being nowhere and everywhere at once. She remembered seeing her father cry when she was a kid, only once. She heard him first, a low moaning noise coming from the kitchen. When she walked through the door, he wiped at his face and turned away from her. She saw his spine shuddering, seeming to collapse a little. I'm sorry, he said, I don't want you to see me like this. She was wearing her pajamas with footsies, and he turned and hugged her, lifting her so that her padded feet left the floor for a second. And while she sat and remembered, there came to her images of Paul's parents waiting at the table. She saw them discussing her rudeness, her strange behavior, her lack of a college education, her job at True Romance. And she could feel Paul's mother feeding off his shame, refusing to look for Esther in the woman's lounge to make sure she was okay. She's a grown woman, Paul. She can take care of herself. She knew that Paul's father would be contemptuous, his cheek quivering with disgust as he summoned the waiter for their check. The image of Paul waiting was too painful, but she could feel him pulling at her, urging her to return. Please, Esther, don't do this to me. Don't leave me here. Come back, Esther. Come back. But the part of her that remained herself, that part that she had tried to submerge when she was with him, would not disappear, and she felt that it was the small and nebulous part that kept her body weighted on the couch. As time passed, her despair, anguish, and panic dissipated. She sank further and further into nothingness. Once, she imagined she heard the ocean thundering, but it was her own blood in her ears. At one point, panic threatened to return, but she decided that it wasn't real, and because she decided this, she wasn't as afraid. She was pleased by this ability to see through her fear, to gauge it as a non-threat. Instead of fear, she discovered a great unwillingness to participate in the life that waited, her for, waited for her beyond the lounge door. The part of her that dreaded the consequences was stilled until she felt that she could take a long nap. She was weak and tired, as if the emotional labor she'd been through had been physical as well. She felt like she'd been awake for days. When she turned off the light, her, the room was filled with an amniotic darkness. She made her body comfortable, using the couch as a bed. Her shawl became an improvised blanket. <clears throat> Esther dozed and woke and dozed again. Images came and went. She was half present, aware of her surroundings, and then unaware, as if drifting through space. In this dreamlike state, she composed excuses for Paul, varying from the self-flagellating, to the humorous, to the charitable, to the long-winded and psychological, and to the purely factual, but none were satisfactory. Briefly, she imagined Paul kissing her, and while she allowed herself to be touched and kissed in her imagination, she was filled with revulsion, detesting his tongue, his teeth butting against hers, the smell of his breath, and she wondered whether he had ever guessed what was going on inside her. How could she continue to fake it? She understood that she could not force herself to love him. Already through the youthful portion of her life, she had decided that any intelligence and thoughtfulness and philosophizing on her part had only hampered her achievement. But she continued to ponder. It was a curse. For women like her, ambition was a series of self-denials. Not to be with a man if he wasn't wealthy. Not to be unpleasant. Not to be loud or opinionated. Not to be indecent. Not to be promiscuous. Not to be unfeminine. Not to get fat. 
not to get old, not to have wrinkles, not to be poor, not to end up childless, not to pursue an identity separate from her family, not to be different, not to be herself, not to question, not to think too much, not to be too educated, not to be too smart, not to be stubborn, not to be defiant. She decided that hers was the worst deception, pretending to desire Paul, the worst shame. A flare of self-hatred and self-disgust rose inside her, and then, just as quickly, it died back down. She heard women coming and going from the bathroom, but thankfully, no one entered this part of the lounge. A woman blew her nose three times, each consecutive blow louder, and then it was quiet again. Her sleep deepened because by this time she believed that Paul and his parents had left the country club, left her life, gone for good. She felt the physical release of allowing her mind to go further into a cavernous slumber, like a dark shadow moving across her, spreading over her, and then it stayed dark and quiet and still. When Esther finally woke, her body was rested and her hangover was gone. She left the women's lounge for the bathroom and turned on the faucet in one of the sinks, washing her face three times <clears throat> with cold water, as though somehow she could rinse everything that had happened off her skin. She would have liked to continue sleeping, to not be so fully alive, with all the requisite emotions and situations and sensations that living and breathing, eyes open, entailed. When she closed the woman's bathroom door behind her, she saw that Paul was standing by the bar, near a large window, staring out at the scene before him, and she knew that while his parents had left long ago, he had continued to wait. Briefly, she thought of exiting through a back door, avoiding him. But she owed him an explanation. He'd waited all this time for one, and she knew that he knew she was there. She walked down the long hallway, past the portraits of the country club's presidents, past the bar, and stopped before the same window with a small space between them. The buffet had been cleared in the next room. There were no families left. The man was no longer playing the piano in the corner. Instead, a generic jazz-infused instrumental came from the speakers. For some reason, it smelled like burnt toast. Without looking at him, she sensed his anger. It radiated off his body. Because she'd washed all her makeup off, she had the sensation of being naked, without protection. The view was of the first tee of the golf course, and she watched a man in patchwork golf pants bend over to tee his ball. In her peripheral vision, she observed Paul, her skin heating with her betrayal. How long had he waited? She'd been asleep for close to two hours. <coughs> <coughs> Paul's hands were hidden in his pockets, and she imagined them twitching. Then she saw the evidence, the material of his slacks rippled, trembling with the movements of his pocketed fingers. They didn't deserve that, he said, still not looking at her. The man in the patchwork pants swung his club, and his golf ball, a speck, disappeared into the blue of the sky. The sky was clear, except for a single heavy cloud, a streak of grayish white and all that blue. They've been through enough, he said. She looked back to the golfers. The man's golfing companions were smiling and nodding, as if telling the man that he'd made a nice shot, and he continued to stare in the direction his ball had gone in. Where were you, Paul asked, continuing to stare out the window. Were you in the bathroom this whole time? What were you doing? Thank you. <laughs> And I'm pleased to introduce our next reader, who um, is a friend of mine, whose book I read years years before and admired so much. Um, Los Angeles Diary, the Los Angeles Diaries, wrote him a fan email. I don't even know if he remembers. And um, and then our books came out at the same time with the same press. So I approached him and said, "Let's try to let's do this thing together and let's help each other along." And um, he agreed, and and we've teamed up to do some readings. And I just admire his work so much. And um, his new memoir is out, "This River," and it's amazing. So I'm really happy to introduce Jim Brown. <laughs> Um, that was a really nice introduction. Um, thank you, Victoria. Can you hear me okay? Um, okay. Um, here we are. Um, I just want to thank Victoria. Victoria is a wonderful novelist, and I'm honored to be um, 
you know, here tonight with her, and then we're going to be at Veromans, and we're going to be at uh, Barnes and Noble and Redlands together, and we just hit it off. It's like, you know, we met, we liked each other, and we just thought that it would be a good thing to do together, um, do these readings, and so it's my pleasure to work and or to be with her. Um, I. I wanted to thank you all for coming tonight, and um, I wanted to thank uh, Skylight for having us here, and I wanted to thank uh, Julia for her hard work and arranging, and I wanted to thank uh, uh, my editor. Um, without uh, my editor's help, Dan Samatenka, um, <clears throat> uh, I wouldn't have this new book. And um, uh, he helped shape this book. Um, he helped make it a better book. I'll read a selection to you, <clears throat> and I hope you enjoy it. This river, this river is 800 miles from my home in Southern California. This river is wide and passes through steep, deeply divided, and lightly vegetated mountainous terrain. It is more than 55 miles long. <clears throat> this river is pure and clean, and in it thrive cutthroat and rainbow trout. But only the Chinook salmon born to these same waters <clears throat> spend only a short part of their lives here. Then they migrate to the ocean where they will wander for years before attempting to return to their natal stream. <clears throat> Some travel as far as 2,500 miles out to sea, and only a small percentage ever succeed in making the dangerous trip home. Many do not carry enough body fat and fail through starvation. More are caught in the fishermen's nets. Otters, eagles, and bears snatch others in the shallower waters. Stronger, fortunate females that survive the journey will lay eggs. The stronger, fortunate males spread the milt. Just days after spawning, giving life to the next generation, they all will then die. I come here in the summer when the migration of the salmon is over <clears throat> and the rapids move more slowly. I come here with two of my sons, Logan and Nate, driving over 10 hours to reach this place, this spot in the Chetco River in Oregon, where 12 years before I spread the ashes of my father. In a few days, I will spread the ashes of my brother along these same waters. My little boy, Nate, only nine, finds a box of remains in the bed of my truck while we're setting up our campsite. It's wrapped in white paper with an envelope taped to one side. What's this, he says. I look over my shoulder. He holds the box up to his ear. He shakes it. Something's rattling. Those are bones, I say. He makes a face. That's your Uncle Barry, Logan tells him. The one Dad's always talking about. The guy in the movies. Oh, he says, sorry. It's okay, I say. Nothing to be sorry about. Just put the box up front under the seat. I've shown them DVDs of Bad Company and Daisy Miller. Both films in which my brother starred. One with Jeff Bridges, the other with Sybil Shepherd. The boys know what he looks like as a young man, forever young and celluloid, but they never met. They know only the characters he played, not the real Barry, the one who would have liked to hold them, to be the good uncle, had he sobered up. <clears throat> this trip to the Chetco is not a simple sojourn for the dead. It is instead, as it should be, about the living. It is, among less tangible, about teaching my sons what my father taught me. How to pitch a tent, how to shoot a 22 rifle straight and true, how to string tackle and bait a hook, and where to throw your line for the best chances of catching a fish. Typically, they feed in the early morning, just after sunrise. And as the day grows warmer, they escape the summer heat by swimming deeper on full bellies they remain there, circling lazily until the evening when it cools off and they rise again to snap up the gnats and mosquitoes that linger too long, too close to the surface of the water. In my mind, I can see my father and I can hear his voice. They're in the deeper pockets, he says, in the white water where it curls over the rocks. You fish downstream, not up. Trout are shy and smart. My father tosses the hook and sinker with ease and precision into a pocket of white water. The force of the current immediately draws the line taut. Remember, if you can see them, they can see you, and won't bite. He squats on his haunches. I do the same, 
and he hands me the pole. For my father, fishing is something of an art, born a necessity, an essential skill acquired to put food on the table. And he wants me to take this lesson seriously. When you feel a nibble, give a little tug. Tease it. And when it strikes hard, pull it fast. Thou hook it. I am serious. My attention is sharp. My attention is focused because I am intent on catching a fish and showing my father that I am capable of doing so. Quickly, with beginner's luck and good instruction, I snag what feels like a big one. The trout shoots up out of the water. You got her, he says. Just stay calm. Reel her in slow. It's a fighter, squirming and flapping and twisting, even when I worked it from the river and onto the sandy bank. It's an easy nine or ten inches. A keeper, my dad says. He pats me on the back. And for this first catch, he does honors at dislodging the hook from its mouth. He helps me with my line and casting and baiting several more times before he leaves so he can fish himself. My father is not a bait and hook man, but I am only around Nate's age, nine or ten, and not yet ready for lessons in the higher art of fly fishing. This is not the usual campground. There are no showers, no toilets or bathrooms. There are no picnic benches, barbecue pits, no motorhomes, no trailers. Out here, you are very much alone, and this, of course, is the way my sons and I like it. During the day, the boys strip down to their swim trunks and play in the river. I watch them from a portable lounge chair, glancing up every now and then from the book I'm reading. It's about a boy and his very odd and unfortunate upbringing with a disturbed mother. My own mother was similarly afflicted, her temper unpredictable, one minute in rage and striking out, the next sad and remorseful. I look at my boys, knowing they too have suffered. For them, it is the sudden and unnecessary death of their mother at the hands of incompetent doctors. For them, it is my own struggle with mental illness, alcohol, and drugs. I would like to tell them that there will be no more slips, no backsliding, because that other father, the sick one, is dead. I would like to promise them the security and stability that all children deserve, but there are no guarantees for people like me, and I fear that I will let them down again. Toward sunset, the boys and I gather the fishing gear and follow a narrow dirt path up and around the river over a small bridge, and then down again to its banks. The evening is warm, and the smell of the surrounding ferns and saplings is thick and sweet. Logan is old enough to rig his own line, but this is Nate's first time, and he needs my help. I show him how to put on the small beaded weights. I show him how to tie the proper knots. I show him how to bait, and seeing his squeamish face, <coughs> As I thread the night collar through the hook, reminds me of my own reaction the first time my father showed me the same. All that ooze and guts, the squirming agonies and pain, the worm as you impale it. Again, I hear my father's voice. Hold like this, run it straight through. If you can see the hook, so can the fish, and they won't bite. I cast a line out for Nate, my father did for me the first time. It lands in white water, curling over a rock. Keep your line taut, he says. When you get a nibble, pull back just a little bit. Tease it. When it bites hard, jerk up on it. What's a bite feel like? You'll know what happens. He's wearing my Yankees baseball cap. Occasionally it slips down his forehead, covering his eyes, and he nudges it back up. He's a little guy, one of the smallest in his classes, with brown hair and round eyes that remind me of his mother. I know it's the tip of his pole dip. That's a nibble, I say. Should I pull up? When it strikes again, I say, be ready. He crouches down. I'm ready, he says. And he says it very seriously. His eyes narrow. He stares intently at the tip of his pole, all focus and concentration. And sure enough, a few seconds later, when the fish strikes again, he pulls up and hooks it. I got it, he says. I got it. I got it. It's a classic moment for any father, watching your child excited, reeling in his first fish. Unfortunately, this one is the size of a minnow. And while it's flipping around on the rocks, fighting to free itself, Logan feels compelled to point out the obvious. It is the job of all older siblings to squelch the joy of younger siblings. The quicker, the better. Yeah, he says, 
You caught a sardine. Shut up, Nate says. You shut up. At least I caught something. I am, at this point, struggling to remove the hook from the fish's tiny mouth. And I don't need any distractions. In the minute this process takes, I've worked up a sweat. And it, is, and it is with considerable relief that I toss the baby trout back into the river, only to watch it float belly up. Shit, I say. We should have kept it, Nate says. And you wasted a life, Logan says. I didn't. Dad did. has a double meaning. <laughs> the current catches the baby trout, pulls it under and away so that soon it's out of sight, out of mind. But there are more where this came from. Inside of an hour, they've caught their limit and we're headed back to camp, all smiles, the boys eager for the first fresh, first fresh trout dinner. <clears throat> this is not at the Chetco River. This is in a rundown rental house. This is at the kitchen table. Today we finish roofing a home. It's evening and we're drinking Pap's Blue Ribbon. My father is old school, believing if I'm man enough to put in a pool day pounding nails and hanging shingles, I am man enough to have a couple of beers. I am 16 years old. When he drinks, he likes to reminisce. And he often talks about the Chetco, the years of his youth spent there camping and fishing and swimming. He talks of one day building a home along its banks to bring his children together, to surround himself with us. But his words are empty. He is a poor man. After our mother bankrupts him, and too old by then, too worn out to recover his losses. Still he talks. I'm not sure what gets into me. I'm not even sure why the subject crosses my mind. But I'm lightheaded with alcohol, and it's emboldened me. I'm young, and my mouth works too easily. You ever scared of dying? What brought that up, he says. I don't say anything. He smiles and chuckles. Death is nothing to be afraid of. He grew up around the Cherokee, and though baptized Methodist, didn't, didn't care for organized religion. What comes of the earth, he says, returns to the earth. Your spirit goes into a pool of deep water where it mixes with the spirits of all God's creatures. The bear, the mountain lion, the squirrel, the deer. Who are we to think we're any better? He puts his hand on top of mine, resting on the table. He smiles again, knowing, I believe, that my question implies a child's fear of losing his parent. There's nothing to worry about. The calm water feeds into the rapids and carries you on. The spirit never dies, he says. It just follows the river. <clears throat> a decade later, I'll return to the Chetco from my father. I bring Andy, my oldest at 12, and Logan, just six. Nate has yet to be born. The lessons learned on that first trip run deeper than showing my sons how to pitch a tent, shoot a rifle, string tackle, and bait a hook. It's the experience itself. It's the wedding of the past with the present the time we spend together, and the time we'll never have again. It's about the loved and the beloved and the memories that survive us. <clears throat> this rifle is a Winchester 22 pump with a smooth wooden stock. This rifle that my sons shoot in the evenings before the sun sets first belonged to my father. Then he passed it on to Barry, his oldest son, who eventually passed it down to me. Learning to use and respect firearms is a rite of passage on my father's side of the family. Hunters raised in the backwoods of Oregon. If they didn't hunt, they did not eat, and with little meat for sale in the nearest town's markets would have been too expensive. You always double check the chamber when you start and when you finish. You walk with the barrel skyward or aimed at the ground. Guns, my father says, are designed for one thing, and that is to kill. The smallest mistake can cost you or someone else their life. Now I pass this rifle on to my sons, along with the same lessons in safety. Though this is a fine gun for hunting small game, rabbit, say, or squirrel, 
I've never used it for anything except target practice. I have trouble with the idea of killing for sport. And my father, in his later years, tells me he'd prefer to shoot a deer with a camera than a gun. I don't think I could pull the trigger. It just isn't in me anymore. They're too beautiful, he says. The, boy, the boys find an old wooden pallet along the side of the narrow dirt road. They drag it to the campsite, each holding one end and set it up across the river facing the mountainside. Logan is already an excellent shot. In the 50 yards or better, he hits all four cans in as many tries. He clears the chamber, leaving the bolt open and pointing the barrel toward the ground as I've taught him, as my father taught me. Go set them up, he says to Nate. Why me? You knocked them down. Because that's how it works. Who says? I say. It's time for me to intervene. Nate, I say, <clears throat> he'll have to do it next time. I'll make sure. Snap, snap, Logan says. Get on running. <clears throat> Nate gives him a dirty look and then hurries to set up the cans. When, he, when he's back behind the firing line, Logan pumps a shell into the chamber, takes aim, and misses. The next shots find their mark, and now it's his brother's turn to shoot. In his first three shot, Nate knocks down one can. In the next five, he takes down the others. He looks at me. He smiles, and in that moment, I see a part of me, at his age, driven by the need to prove myself to my father and brother. I remember it well. I remember wanting nothing more than to please them, to shoot as good, to catch as many fish and just as big, to keep up with them on hikes without whining even though I'm thirsty and exhausted. Complaining if I want the respect is not an option. Then Nate turns and smile onto Logan, only it's suddenly a smug one. Snap, snap, he says. Go on, get running. This is the third and last afternoon that we spend on the Chetco River. Logan has taken a nap in the tent he shares with his brother. Nate is at the river's edge, stacking rocks in a circle, building a prison for the brown salamanders he catches. At last count, he had 29. They keep escaping, either under or over the rocks. While he is reinforcing the walls of his salamander prison, I go to the truck for the box containing my brother's ashes. Taped to one side is an envelope, which I remove and split open. <clears throat> In it, I find a legal document. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> In it, I find a legal document, a permit for disposition of human remains, with the decedent listed as Donald Barry Brown. His race, dates of death and birth, age, 27. Beneath that is the signature of the local registrar issuing the permit, name I can't quite make out, followed by the signature of the funeral director at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in neatly written script. Of course, I did not file a permit for the disposition of my brother's remains with the Oregon Department of Health and Safety. Of course, I did not file a permit for the disposition of my father's remains with the Oregon Department of Health and Safety when I scattered them here 12 years ago. This river belongs to them as this river belongs to them as much as anyone else. Even more in my father's case, for to him, this is the river of dreams, the river of stories, the river of his childhood. I walk to the water's edge and remove my shoes. The rocks beneath my feet are smooth. The river pushes against the back of my legs. And as I move toward a deep pool of calm water that slowly empties it moves. The river pushes against the back of my legs as I move toward a deep pool of calm water that slowly empties out into the rapids ahead. Soon I'm up to my waist and the riverbed has become soft with sand. I close my eyes. I pray, as I prayed for our Father. I do not know who or what I am praying to, but I pray nonetheless. I pray with gratitude for the time Barry and I had together, however brief, and I tell him I love him, as I told my Father, that I never stop loving them. I pray for my sister too, and that she pass quickly, mercifully. I pray that they are all free of pain and suffering, I pray for the ability to forgive. Then I open my eyes. I open a box. <sighs> Can you 
Cancer took our father at, 20, at 76. And for Barry, depressed and alcoholic, it came by his own hand, a single shot to the head. I've waited years to scatter these ashes because I had hoped my sister would join me, that we could all make this trip together, my boys and her daughter. But she always found some excuse, some reason to postpone this trip. And now she's gone too, another suicide. I would like to spread her ashes and berries together, but my niece has them, and we are on uncertain terms. I know her answer without asking. The river is cold. The ash and bowl, the, I'm sorry, the ash and bone are dull white. I wade further into the pool and spread this ash, this bone, a handful at a time across the waters. The heavier particles float to the bottom, and the lighter slowly ride the surface toward the rapids. In letting go, I feel, oddly, that I am strengthening my hold on everyone dearest to me, both the living and the dead. I am and am not alone. The Chetco remains always running and going, joining my brother with my father, my father with my brother, and I trust that one day I will follow this river with them. This winter, the salmon will travel thousands of miles across the ocean to reach the freshwater breeding grounds of their birth. They are guided, my father told me, by the sun, the stars, and the magnetic pole of the earth. As a boy, he fished here with his father at the mouth of the river when the salmon came. Like the Chetco Indians hundreds of years before, my father and his father used spears to stab them, fat 30-pounders, snatched them out of the water. They ran so thick, he said, you could almost walk across them. Someday, I would like to spear salmon. Someday, when we take this trip again, maybe my niece will allow me to spread her mother's ashes. These are my thoughts as we're packing to leave, rolling up the sleeping bags, taking down the tents. It's early in the morning, and a light rain has begun to fall. Later, back in the truck, I will tell my son stories about the grandfather they never met, the uncle they never knew, the aunt who left them too few memories. I will talk about their mother as well, especially their mother, and how she loved them, how that love now resides in the heart. I need for them to remember. I need for all of us to remember, even if it's only a story. And I hope to return to the Chetco with all three of my boys. I hope someday for us all to stand on the banks of this river, spears in hand, poised to throw as the rush of salmon make their final way home. Thank you. Uh, I thought we agreed to have a Q&A with the authors. Authors. <laughs> come back. Come back. <laughs> come back. James? <laughs> um, yeah. First of all, let's congratulate them. Do you have questions for the authors? I read your Allied Hours book, and I don't know if you said so or not, but I was curious of if you wanted to say it. What happened to you, your mother? To my mother? Yeah. She died a few years back. Um, as it turned out, there, there's a piece in this river, the new book, oh. where I'll where uh, she comes back into my life. And although I hadn't really spoken with her in 10, 15 years, um, since my brother and sister were not there to care for her in her last years when her husband died, it was my responsibility to, to step up and, and look after her. I, I still have very mixed feelings about, and when you read the piece, if you have the opportunity, you'll see. I was curious about uh, your main character, Esther. Um, I was kind of curious of where she sprung from or came from, if she's related to you in any way, or she seems sort of, I don't know, <laughs> sort of something like, like I would know in her life. 
Um, she was, I read House of Mirth and, and she was uh, inspired by Lily Bart, which is an amazing heroine in literature. And um, she's way more uh, pretty than I am and she knows fashion way more than I do. But of course I seeped into her a little bit, I couldn't help but um, in ways that I'm never going to tell you. And, um, um, but basically, she, yeah, she, a, a whole bunch of inspirations for, for Esther. But I would say Lily Bart was the, the big one from House of Mirth. This is my first novel. I have a collection of short stories also that came out in 2009. But this is my first novel. Which I'd like to add is a terrific uh, collection of short stories. That's how I discovered how, what a good writer she was and uh, how underrated she, uh, she, she was. Her book did not get the attention it deserved. Um, Drift, I highly recommend it. It really struck me as a, one of the better books that I've read in a long, long time. I'll pay you later. <laughs> well, it's called Drift. The collection of stories. Yeah, Drift. Drift. Yeah. And we have copies available up front. Can you can you talk a little bit more about um, how you used the House of Mark when you were? I mean, did you read that book or reread that book and then kind of? And then you started writing this, or were you already writing about Esther, or you had this novel, and and like how much did you? Basically, when I was at when I was in grad school, a professor kind of joked with me and said, "You should write a House of Mirth, based on Newport Beach, or you know, for Newport Beach." And I don't think he was he was just talking. I don't think he was even taking it seriously and just kind of slipped out. And then I hooked into that and I couldn't let it go. I just thought about it constantly. I love the novel House of Mirth. It's one of my favorites. So I read it, reread it, read it again, and then I knew she had a complicated and influential relationship with Henry James. So I started reading him, and, I, and then I read her biography, and then I read her autobiography, and then I read, which was really helpful, all sorts of deconstructionist texts about House of Mirth, the Marxist texts and interpretations, and, um, and I just read everything. Um, Marxist deconstruct and feminist um, perspectives on the House of Mirth. So I knew, theories about it, and, and um, so it's, it really influenced the writing in all sorts of ways, not just the House of Mirth, but I think the combination of all those texts came together and, and with my own experiences and ideas and feelings about Newport Beach and created this crazy thing. <laughs> I, I It's very ornate, I think, and I think that's Henry James. I think he see, his sentences are crazy long and swooping. And so for me, I always I got a kick out of it because the subject matter of Newport Beach in the 90s is a little bit crass. And, you know, and they hang out at these crazy restaurants and drink apple martinis. And then you've got these long, elegant, swooping sentences. So I would make myself laugh. I thought it was funny. <laughs> And then um, nobody else, like my husband, or people didn't think they're, but then I brought it to my writer's group and they, they helped keep me excited about it when I was starting to get a little down about it because it had, it got passed on by my house that took my, my story collection. So I had lost a little enthusiasm, but I brought it there and they said, no, this is funny. This is, keep going. And I, so it kept me going. I don't think, I don't know. I needed someone else, other people to in there and tell me to keep going or I don't know what I would have done and two of them are here tonight <laughs> so. the same what and arts um, yeah yeah as a matter of fact uh, one is uh, fancies himself a cowboy now and is riding the Bronx uh, and uh, he loves the country and really wants to that's he wants to move to Wyoming or Montana and right now he's in San Bernardino and went out to Norco to ride the Bronx and whatnot and uh, the other one uh, the older boy I have is 
he's followed his dad's footsteps in terms of wanting to, to go into art, but not the art of writing, uh, studio um, the painting and sculpture. And he's very good at that. And he got into a good grad school. I'm real proud of him. And then I got my 15-year-old. And uh, yeah, he likes outdoors too, but uh, we haven't spent too much time on the outdoors. We've We've, uh, we spend a lot of time together, though. I, I really, he's, we spend a lot of time, I, I spent a lot of time with my boys now that I'm sober. Yeah. What do you teach? I teach um, um, literature mostly, and well, actually creative writing, fiction, memoir. Um, uh, I am the soon to step down director of the MFA program at Cal State San Bernardino. And, uh, but I've been there like forever, <laughs> 25 years. So that's been my trade. It's been a good trade, it really has. And I, I think back to the times when I worked with my father doing construction. And then after I got out of uh, uh, college, I never expected to make it to college. And it was my father's encouragement. Uh, the counselors wanted me to go into the trades. And back then they had vocational schools. So at the eighth grade, I was tracked into the vocational program, but you have, your dad has to sign off, your parent has to sign off. Mm. I was with my father at that time, <clears throat> and he refused to sign off. They said, I want you to keep going, but I was a poor student, you know, so, but I, I, I scraped by, and I got into college, and I, and I worked hard, and when, once I got there, I started taking it more seriously, and he taught me a few lessons about the trade where I realized that the trades were hard, you know, you were going to have to work very hard. Um, and not that professors don't work hard, okay? <laughs> we do, but we're, we don't put in the 60, 70 hours a week, you know, pulling wire and bending conduit and pounding nails. And, um, it's a different job, and I've got it pretty good, I really do. Compared to how hard my father had to work, I've got it real good, so I really can't, uh, I have no right to whine or complain. So. Yes? There's a, a passage in the uh, Los Angeles Diaries where you, uh, or more than one passage, where you talk about experiences in screenwriting. And uh, <laughs> I'm uh, very funny and also very truthful. Uh, and I'm just wondering if since then you've had any further experiences or further thoughts on that matter. Um, you know, <clears throat> I haven't worked in the screenwriting trade for a while. But there's a fellow, a uh, fellow named Jude Prest who optioned uh, the Los Angeles Diaries. And he's just finished a script, and you know, I don't have much faith in writers, including myself. And I don't even know if what I'm writing is any good until my wife pats me in the back and says, "Good job, Jim." You know, and I need encouragement. I'm I'm full of self-doubt about my work until until I get some outside people telling me that, yeah, it's okay, it's okay. You know, relax, chill. You you did a pretty good job. Um, and uh, and this screenwriter, you know, I, I expected. You know, I have this. If, if you have, if you have a relatively low opinion of yourself as a writer, imagine my opinion of a screenwriter. You know, and but the guy, it turns out, is a decent human being, which is a big plus in the screenwriting trade. Hard to find. Um, and not only that, the guy wrote a killer script. He really did a d darn good job. Of, uh, and I was really pr impressed. And I, you know, I was. I'm really impressed, and I, I hope he can set it up. But you just finished it, and it's going out in the next couple of weeks. Keep your fingers crossed for me, and you know, chant or a prayer. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you want to play you? Um, Sam Rockwell. Uh, ooh, yeah. yeah. Doesn't have the arms for it. <laughs> <laughs> now he'd have to do some work. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much.